talking level is for educational purposes only. Roxas and Jamie always try to provide accurate information. The law is like what I'm willing to eat. It's always changing. This podcast is not legal advice and does not create an attorney-client relationship, but they promised me it would be a lot of fun for you. Can I get my candy now? Hello, everyone, and welcome to Chalk and Gavel, where we explore how the law shapes education one case at a time. I'm Chris Thomas. And I'm Jamie Cudlitz. Nice to have you back with us. Today, we are going to talk about a case that involved searching a student's cell phone and a parent getting rather upset. This is the 2019 case of Jackson versus McCurry. Cell phones and angry parents. Those are two things that I think educators wouldn't mind dealing with a little bit less. (laughs) That's right. So before we get into this episode, we want to take a quick opportunity to let you know about something that we are doing every now and then. We are going to put together sort of a special episode that takes on a different kind of a different angle. Mm -hmm. Every episode that we do, for the most part, has to do with one particular case, and we kind of talk about that case. But every now and then, we want to do something a little different. And so we're going to periodically release these episodes that we're going to call Sidebars. Bonus content. Yes. So we've got one coming up for you. Our first Chalk and Gavel sidebar is going to be focused on what, Chris? The Supreme Court. The audio just played in my head of the People's Court, you know, like the... (laughs) Dung, dung. Yeah, exactly. Um, <laughs> I would throw that in here, but I think that's copywritten. Yeah, it's too it's too uh, noticeable. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah, so we're going to talk about, in our first sidebar, we're going to talk about the Supreme Court. We're going to talk about how it works. Mm-hmm. We're going to talk about the role that it's played in education over the years. We're going to talk about big cases, major cases. We're going to talk about, you know, big recent cases. We're going to talk about what's on the docket for this year. Yeah. And to help us do this. This is the part I'm most excited about. I know, me too. We're going to be joined by longtime Supreme Court journalist and correspondent, Mark Walsh. So Mark writes for SCOTUS blog. He writes for Education Week. He's followed education law issues for a while now. I'm sure he's going to have some great stories because like you said, he's been doing this for a while, I think about 25 years. So he'll be joining us on our first sidebar. And we're going to push that episode out to you on Boxing Day, folks, December 26th. We've got our first sidebar coming out. So we hope that you tune in over the holidays. It's a good holiday present. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Happy holidays, Chalk and Gavel listeners. <laughs> All right, let's, uh, let's get into this. So before we dig into our case, Jamie, you got any bell ringers for us? Yes, I just came across this article the other day. This was on the website, The 74. Uh, It's the74million.org. This was an article that was referencing a PEN America report that indicates that 1.3 million teachers and 100,000 professors are now under, quote, educational gag orders. So this article basically talks about how in this year alone, there have been around 110 bills that seek to restrict discussion of things like race, U.S. history, 
LGBTQ people and issues in schools and colleges, and and you know about 110 bills or so that have been introduced in state legislatures. And so far, 10 of those have become law this year, which adds to the roughly 20 bills that have been passed on those particular topics in 2021 and 2022, a number of executive orders and state agency mandates. Um, there are now 40 legal restrictions on educator speech in 21 states, according to this article and this Penn report. And so based on all of that, Penn estimates that 1.3 million K-12 teachers and 100,000 public college and university professors are affected and, mm-hmm. and are having their, their sort of speech restricted as a result of yeah. these bills, right? Yeah. Jamie, are you are you one of those 100,000 professors? Um, I believe what has been passed here in North Carolina would probably include me in that list. Yes. Sure. I am here in Florida, right? Like, yes. So these are very significant and, you know, very personal issues that a lot of educators are dealing with. I know in Florida, like navigating the laws that apply to both K-12 and higher education has been a really significant concern over the last couple of years for educators and for my colleagues too. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, I mean, it's fascinating how widespread this is. I mean, according to this Pen America data, it looks like there's only about three or four maybe five states that don't have laws, state policies, or bills that are in the proposal stage on these topics. Mm -hmm. You know, that means there's about 45 states, (laughs) if I'm doing my math right, you know, that, that have something in place or in the proposal stage on these kinds of issues, which is I mean, it's pretty amazing how how widespread this is. It is. And yeah, it's one of those examples of states kind of just learning from each other because a lot of these bills also have a lot in common with each other. Yeah. So a lot of them are modeled after President Trump's executive order around divisive concepts, <laughs> Florida's Individual Freedom Act or Parents' Rights and Education Act. So those are more commonly understood or referred to as like don't say gay or the stop woke act. Right. Uh, a lot of states have kind of borrowed those kind of ideas too. So this isn't a, you know, this is a, a national trend of state policies for sure. Yeah. You know, and the article even says that more bills are expected in 2024, according to Penn, and some of them might even go further than the ones that are currently in place. Right. It specifically references an Oklahoma bill that prohibits students from disclosing their LGBTQ identity and a bill in Ohio that would impose disciplinary sanctions for college students or faculty who violate the, quote, intellectual diversity rights, unquote, of others by discussing topics such as allyship, diversity, social justice, sustainability, systemic racism, gender identity, equity, or inclusion. Whoa, that's a really broad law. Yeah. Also, I don't know what disciplinary sanctions means in this context, but... That's one of the things that kind of gets me about a lot of these laws is they're aimed at intellectual diversity. So like this idea that we want everyone to be exposed to lots of different ideas, but the way in which they're pursuing intellectual diversity is by silencing a diverse viewpoint. It's this weird doublespeak where like we want intellectual diversity, but we're going to do it by curtailing intellectual diversity. Right. And you said, you know, in one of our recent episodes, you're talking about, you know, one of the points you made is the the way the courts have kind of approached issues of free speech and things like that is they've generally taken the standpoint of if there is speech you don't like, the remedy for that is not curtailing speech. It's more speech. Right. 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 And the funny thing is, like, 
I'm just reading through this article, and in that example that I just gave, where it says college students or faculty who violate the, quote, intellectual diversity rights of others by discussing topics such as, quote, allyship, diversity, social justice, all of those things, one of those things in there was sustainability. And the article references this sort of hypothetical and says, okay, so a dean who sends out an email cheering for the new sustainable roof on the environmental sciences building would be violating the law because he's expressing an institutional position on sustainability. Right. Yeah. So the potential implications here are really big. But one thing that I'll say is, so when all this was coming down in Florida, there was a lawsuit at the higher education level, basically challenging the application of the Individual Freedom Act or the Stop Woke Act to institutions of public higher education in the state of Florida. And a judge struck it down uh, mm-hmm. and basically said that, uh, you know, it violated the First Amendment. It was unconstitutional. That decision's on appeal right now, but at least for right now, it's not in effect. Right. But that those sort of um, lawsuits and things haven't really deterred politicians from kind of pursuing these laws. Right. You know, and then just the last thing I'll say about this particular article, you know, is that they do highlight that public support for a lot of these policies is in flux, I would say. And that is causing a lot of the supporters of these policies to have to kind of reframe them. Mm. And the article does reference some poll numbers that indicate, um, for example, a 2022 survey indicates that only 13% of respondents believed that state lawmakers should have a great deal of influence over classroom discussions of race or slavery. Mm. And, you know, there are some other polls that found that pretty significant amount of folks believe that the older a student is, the more exposure they should have to some of these topics like gay rights and sexual orientation, gender identity, Mm -hmm. those kinds of things. Sure. You know, the younger the kid, the less support those topics have. But it's just given the fact that teachers are on the front lines of these things you know, I think this is essentially what the article is pointing out, that these gag orders are really affecting the people who are on the front lines, the people mm-hmm. who are working with the kids day in and day out. And in many cases, there's a lot of ambiguity right. in here. Yeah. And it's scaring people. Mm-hmm. Teachers don't know what it's safe to say and what it's not safe to say. Right. And we haven't seen really how these laws are going to be enforced, you know, whether they're going to be enforced or where those kind of brighter lines might be. Yeah. Um, But within that ambiguity, there's a lot of room for discretion, right? Like it's, it's one of those opportunities where if folks know the law, know how to read or understand the law, know how it's enforced, that can be really empowering and can really help us navigate a lot of these issues. So I really look forward to doing an episode, a deep dive episode into one of these cases that ultimately comes out just to kind of show how these laws can be understood, how they might fit within existing legal doctrines and, you know, hopefully helping increase confidence of folks to try to help navigate the gray areas of these laws. Right. And, you know, and as you said earlier with, you know, Florida as an example, you know, I think where we'll leave this particular bell ringer is that a number of these policies are being challenged in court. Mm -hmm. And all it's going to take is for one of these cases to end up in a district court of appeals And if it's found to be unconstitutional, all of a sudden you could have four or five states' policies struck down pretty quickly. Mm -hmm. So it'll be really interesting to see how this unfolds over the next couple of years. 
Anyway. Yeah, definitely something I'm watching. Yeah, yeah, totally. Um, okay, so that's our bell ringer. And now it is time to dive into our case for the day, which is Jackson versus McCurry. You ready? Let's do it. This is a fun one. I've got some opinions. Um, so did the judges. Get it? <laughs> <laughs> that was awful. Oh, boy. <laughs> Dad jokes. Um, okay. Uh, so here we go with uh, Jackson versus McCurry. So this is a case that was decided in March of 2019. So it's not too long ago. And this was a case out of the great state of Georgia, where I lived for many, many years. So this is a case out of Chattahoochee County, which is down by Columbus. So Columbus is probably on the north-south axis, a little bit more than halfway down the state of Georgia, and it's right on the Georgia-Alabama state Mm. line and kind of near Auburn University, and Chattahoochee County is not in Columbus, it's just kind of right outside Columbus, and it's a very small school district, so it seems like Mm -hmm. there's only like three schools, an elementary, middle, high school. It's entirely possible they're on the same campus, I don't know that for sure, but it's very small. Sure. So what happened in this case was, we've got a high school student, we're going to call her EDJ. Now, just for the sake of trying to keep things from going off the rails here. There's a lot of players in this episode and a lot of them, especially the students, because they're minors, you know, we don't have names for them. So they're all initials and it gets really confusing. So we're just going to reference the folks in this case by their position for the most part and Mm -hmm. not their name. So we've got a student, EDJ. We could call her Edie. We could call her Edie. Yeah. Her last name we know is Jackson. So Edie was a 12th grade student at uh, the Chattahoochee County Middle High School during the 2016-2017 school year. And so what happened was there's these rumors that started circulating about how Edie was gossiping about another student. So the rumors made it back to this other student who confronted Edie and this other student threatened Edie, allegedly. After school that day, Edie told school officials about the threat that she received from this other student. And so at this point, you know, everything's going according to plan here. You know, something happened. School officials were told Mm -hmm. the next day, an admin assistant to the AP and the principal started gathering information. Okay. They're trying to figure out what's going on. So everything is, you know, we're doing what we need Mm -hmm. to do. Right. For sure. So, you know, other students got involved And, uh, you know, apparently the thing was something about ED making fun of this other student for not making the volleyball team. Mm -hmm. And one student told the admin assistant that a lot of this was happening through text messages Mm -hmm. that ED was sending. So after all of those interviews and that fact finding, ED was called to the office to explain her side of the story. Right. Right. And that's a really tricky thing. So like ED's the one who tells school officials that somebody threatened her and now school officials in their investigation have kind of like identified that ed might have been engaged in some problematic behavior so like yeah not purely the victim right yeah Yeah. so going into this interview is really tricky because you're basically talking to the person who reported it but with all of these situations there's a lot more context that the school officials just don't have until they do that investigation yeah so 
I mean, this investigation looks like they did the right thing, right? It seems like it, right? Like up until this point, everything seems like it's going to plan, you know, like you said, like mm-hmm. there's nine sides to every story. And right. so even though it was Edie who was the one who initially came forward, right? now it's looking like, okay, we've got to really talk to Edie about what her mm-hmm. role was in all of this. Right. I like what you said about up until now, everything seems to be going right. Because, <laughs> <laughs> Well, and unlike our audience at this point, we kind of know where this is going. Right. Well, they know it was the lawsuit, so they're waiting for the shoe to drop. Yeah. <laughs> Don't keep them in suspense, Jamie. <laughs> okay. So basically what happened here is they decided to search Edie's cell phone because, again, they had heard that there were rumors that a lot of this potential bullying or whatever that was going on was happening through text messages. So Edie claimed that she refused to give permission to have her cell phone searched. We can talk about that later, but the end result was if that was the case, the school ignored it and searched her cell phone anyway. And they had to get pretty, you know, to use some of these legal terms around searches, they had to get pretty invasive. And one of the reasons was they noticed that the people who were potentially being targets or the text message exchanges were between Edie and people who had pseudonyms or emojis or whatever as their names instead of their actual names. So the school had a tough time figuring out who was who, right? Sure. Yeah. So like the contact information was just nicknames or or emojis, which I'm not a teenager, obviously. How do you keep that straight? Like, I I can see it. I mean, like, I remember being a teenager and I think like, you know, some of my friends, I only called them by their nickname and, you know, and sure, sure. But emojis, (laughs) there weren't any of those things when I was a teenager. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But, but yes, I, 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 I'm with you. Maybe I'm just showing my age, but Hey, that's the second episode we've talked about emojis, which is more than the Supreme court. So yes, it's also the second episode or maybe even the third episode where we've talked about our age. So I, (laughs) there's a theme here. (laughs) Oh no. Um, Okay. So uh, they searched the cell phone and they even went as far as examining conversations between Edie and her family members, best friend and ex-boyfriend. Yeah. Mm. So now at the end of the day, the school basically determined after that search that Edie did nothing wrong. And they returned the phone to her and, you know, possibly case closed. But that is not the end of the story. Of course not. Because basically, because dad, Edie's dad, finds out about this that night when Edie comes home that her cell phone was searched and whatever. And his name was Richard Jackson. And he seemed to get upset about this. So over the next few days, mm-hmm. he was repeatedly calling the superintendent and the principal and the assistant principal According to the superintendent, in one call, Jackson left a message indicating that the search of the cell phone was a Fourth Amendment violation and he was going to proceed with legal action. Okay. Now, Jackson asserts that he only mentioned that that was an option, that he didn't say he was actually going to pursue legal action. But what follows here, there seems to be a lot of he said, she said kind of stuff going on where, sure. you know, the school sure. or the the superintendent says, you know, Jackson's actions were like this. And Jackson was saying, well, no, that's not what happened. So that, that kind of happens a lot. Mm-hmm. 
But yeah, but if you're the dad, like if I'm in this situation, I think I'm doing the same thing. Maybe I don't do it in the way that he did it, but the like searching the cell phone and reading all these different messages that it seems like going kind of beyond what you were looking for. And you got to imagine like a kid's cell phone, that is everything. Their entire life right. is on there. So it feels pretty intrusive given what they were looking for. And then there's also this issue where like she was the one that came forward saying that another student threatened her and now she's the one under investigation. So like I can understand from the dad's perspective why he's upset and why he's trying to get some somebody to listen at the school about like, hey, I think you all violated my daughter's rights. Can we talk about it? Or like, and I don't know what he was asking for, right? Because, but that's the thing though. Like, you know, I think without knowing, without being able to get into these people's heads, I completely mm -hmm. agree with you. Like, but it's not about what his motivation was as much as it's about what were his actions. Right. Because I think if it were you mm -hmm. or if it were me in that same position, I don't know if this is how I would mm -hmm. would act, but I would like to think that it would be a very calm, like, hey, can we have a discussion about this? Right. I, I'm uncomfortable with what happened and how mm -hmm. it went down, and so I'd like to hear your side of the story. Right. Or it could have been what the superintendent alleges, is that, like, in one of right. the first phone calls, it's like, you know, you guys are incredibly inappropriate. You mm -hmm. violated my kids' rights. I'm going to sue you. Right. Yeah. There, there's difference between those two things, right? Exactly. And, and yeah. honestly, like from the school's perspective, if somebody comes at you like that, you immediately go into circle the wagon mode. Yeah. So, you, you know, it's hard to tell mm -hmm. exactly what, you know, what was going on here. Right. But that's not all Jackson did, right? Like, so no, yeah, you know, we could talk about what we would do, but Jackson kept going. Yeah. He kept going. And so because some of the rumors were centering on EDJ making fun of another student for not making the volleyball team or something like that, mm. um, Jackson goes and approaches the coaches of the volleyball team. Right, because ED was on the volleyball team. Yeah, and here's another reoccurring theme that seems to be popping up in all of our episodes between bell ringers and court cases. Hmm, athletics. Yeah, <laughs> apparently can get you into some trouble. <laughs> I guess so. So anyway, so Jackson goes and confronts the volleyball coaches. And according to the volleyball coaches, um, and they reviewed video footage of this interaction. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure if there was audio as a part of it or not. Doesn't seem like there was. But according to the school, that interaction was aggressive. And included in the, mm -hmm. that interaction was Jackson telling the coaches that he would show the assistant principal what intimidation was because he believed that the assistant principal had intimidated his daughter. So according mm. to the school, they are alleging that Jackson was using threatening language, right? Sure, sure. So Jackson also allegedly asked the coaches to identify the student that he believed was playing a role in the events that involved his daughter, Jackson denied being aggressive. Mm. He denied making any threats against the AP. And ultimately, as a result of this incident, the superintendent and the SRO reviewed video footage of that meeting and decided that Jackson did indeed pose a threat to the safety of the school's employees and students. Mm -hmm. And I appreciate the like superintendent here reviewing the video, talking to the witnesses. This is a very involved superintendent. 
Yeah. And seems to be doing the, like the right steps here. Like, it's not just like my coaches perceived it as threatening. It's like, no, I'm going to go watch the video and I'm going to do it with my school resource officer, who I think is also a police officer, right? Like, yeah, like everything, again, everything seems to be going by the book, so to speak at this point. So uh, a few days after this, Jackson goes to the school to speak with the principal. And based on what he had heard from the coaches, the superintendent figured that Jackson was there to confront the AP. Mm. Okay. Yeah. So in the superintendent's mind, I've got this parent who, according to these coaches, has threatened one of my school administrators. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to be there to step in when this guy shows up. Yeah. So, Which is great because showing up unannounced, yeah. there's this, this concern about what that meeting is going to look like. It doesn't sound like from this other stuff, it might be a very cordial meeting. Might not think of it as it being a potentially productive one. So right. yeah, no, superintendent gets involved, yep. steps in front, protects his staff. Yep. And prevents Jackson from coming into the school. And the school resource officer was there as support for the superintendent as well. <laughs> so uh, they prevented him from entering the building. and told him that he had to refrain from any further communication with the school officials or students and direct all future communication to the school board's attorney. Okay. As a former school board attorney. You had a lot of these, huh? I had (laughs) situations where that came up and, oh my gosh, sometimes you could tell why they had burnt their bridges. Yeah. Anyway, uh, so that happened. Um, The superintendent comes back in, tells the school resource officer what he just decided and instructed him to remove or arrest the father if he saw him on school property. Mm -hmm. Followed up a few days later with the father with a letter to recount the events, and the letter stated that the school district had, quote, determined your conduct in this regard is disruptive and contrary to the establishment of a healthy educational Mm -hmm. environment for students of our school system, unquote, And basically indicated that we're barring the father from making any unauthorized appearances on school premises and any other extracurricular activities, except it did permit the father coming onto campus to transport ED to and from school and allowed the father to attend ED's volleyball games. Okay? So basically, the letter recounted everything and said, you can't talk to anybody You can't come onto school property unless you're picking up or dropping off your kid or attending one Mm -hmm. of their volleyball games. Okay. Sure. Which when I was practicing, we called that trespassing the parent. Like you basically, they're, they're a threat to the safety and security of the school or they're disruptive. You just, you give them a letter that says you're not allowed on school premises, um, except for these limited circumstances. So if you come back, you're trespassing. Right. Um, and that, you know, that happens Yeah, not a lot, but it's a, it's a tool in the quiver that schools can use. Yeah, totally. Eh, so anyway, you know, for the sake of time here, I'll close out my portion basically by saying about a month after all of this, the father shows up for a volleyball game and gets escorted out Ooh. Yeah, by the SRO and the administrative assistant. That seems to be a big old problem because the letter said, hey, you can come to your volleyball games. So there might be a breakdown of communication here. Yeah. And that's essentially what what seems to have happened is that there was a breakdown of communication. They tried to escort the father out and the letter didn't get to Mm -hmm. the principal or the administrative assistant or the SRO. It says that they had never received that letter. They hadn't read that letter. 
Uh, that was sent to Jackson. So they sure. didn't know that he was permitted to be there for the volleyball game. This is probably the straw that breaks the camel's back, right? Like, yeah, yeah. So then we've got a we've got a lawsuit that basically covers a lot of different stuff, right? It does. Yeah, there's a lot to this because I mean, it's a not uncommon story, but it's a story with a lot of pieces to it because the lawsuit ends up bringing like four civil rights claims. Uh, so they filed their um, lawsuit in federal court alleging violations of the First Amendment and the Fourth Amendment for both Jackson, the parent, and um, constitutional violations against the student as well. So there's kind of four claims here. There's a claim that the search of the student's cell phone of Edie's cell phone violated her Fourth Amendment rights. There's a claim that the parent's Fourth Amendment rights were violated when he was removed from school premises during the volleyball game. There's an allegation that his First Amendment rights were violated when the school prohibited him from speaking to school personnel or accessing school property and for not allowing him to speak at a school board meeting, which was another thing that he had asked for. He wanted to kind of take his grievances up to the school board level and the superintendent said, no, you can't do that. Um, and then, you know, there's a bunch of other claims in here, maybe not a bunch, but there's a handful of other claims in here that aren't federal claims, that are state law claims that aren't really central to what the court decides here, but um, state law claims for assault, um, invasion of privacy and false imprisonment. So there's there's these other state uh -huh. claims as well, um, because I think uh, the father was claiming that when he was escorted out, they you know they put hands on him and had to like physically escort him out, and he said that was excessive and that you didn't really have to do that. <laughs> okay, so we're at the Eleventh Circuit Court of Appeals at the lower court. The lower court grants summary judgment for the school district on all of the claims. So parent loses all of the claims at summary judgment and the lower court basically concludes that no constitutional violations occurred and that even if there were constitutional violations here that all of the school officials are protected by what's called qualified immunity meaning that they didn't violate a clearly established constitutional right so therefore they are immune from civil liability um, and so basically it's one of those things where the parents kind of lose twice here they lose on the merits, according to the lower court, and they also lose on qualified immunity, which would even stop somebody from getting to the merits. So hmm. it's, a, it's, a, it's a double loss, yeah, if you want yeah, to think yeah, about yeah. it like that. Okay. Um, and so that's the federal claims, and then basically dismisses the state claims because there's just not enough to show that these defendants acted with actual malice or kind of met the standard to overcome their official state-level immunity for their acts for these state claims. Okay. Um, so we get to the 11th Circuit. Parents are unhappy with the decision, so they appeal. And the 11th Circuit affirms the lower court. They said, yes, lower court, you got it right. The school officials here enjoy qualified immunity. They're all entitled to qualified immunity, so therefore this lawsuit can't go forward. So a little bit more about qualified immunity, because this is a term that you probably hear a lot, but you don't hear it a lot in the school context. You might have mm -hmm. heard it in the law enforcement context. So it, it applies equally to all government officials, all governmental actors. And essentially, it protects government officials from liability for civil damages as compared to criminal damages. So this is a civil lawsuit, right? Mm -hmm. If they are acting within the scope of their discretional authority, and their conduct doesn't violate clearly established constitutional rights of which a reasonable person would have known. And so the, the whole point of qualified immunity is essentially to ensure that public officials are able to kind of 
do their jobs in a reasonable way without kind of this fear of you know having to second guess everything they do or so that they have enough discretion to be able to succeed um, without kind of having to worry or have some court second guess what they do after the fact. And right. so it's this really complicated balancing act between allowing public officials discretion to do their jobs while also making sure that government officials are accountable when they do mess up or do violate people's rights. Right. And so there's kind of this, you know, I've, I think I've used the phrase play in the joints here yeah. a lot, but it's definitely a balancing act to make sure that they have enough discretion to do their jobs while also protecting people whose rights are violated when they do go too far. And so this whole case hinges on that question of qualified immunity. So in order to overcome qualified immunity, you basically have to establish two things, that the defendant violated somebody's constitutional rights, that the state actor violated constitutional rights, and that at the time those rights were violated, those rights were clearly established in light of kind of the specific context of the case okay. and not just as broad general propositions. And so this is an issue of kind of levels of abstraction where how specific does the clearly established right have to be? Is it something as broad as unreasonable searches are unconstitutional or does it have to be something specific as when you search a student's phone for the purposes of finding evidence of bullying and harassment, you can't go beyond the scope of what your witnesses told you you were going to find. Yeah. So like you can see how there might be an issue here about how clearly defined the right has to be. Got it. So, you know, that's qualified immunity in a nutshell. The court finds that in all of these claims, the school officials are entitled to qualified immunity. So the circuit court, the appeals court, doesn't address the merits of the constitutional claims. They're just looking to see if there's a violation of the right or if the right was clearly established because courts can answer those questions in any order that they want. So if a right isn't clearly established, that's enough to establish qualified immunity. The court doesn't have to look to see if there was a constitutional violation. And that's what the court does here. It doesn't say anything about whether or not there were constitutional violations. It just kind of looks at saying that none of the rights here were clearly established or there's no like clear indication that a clearly established right was, was violated. Got it. So into the individual claims. So for the Fourth Amendment claim, this is the, the search of E.D.'s cell phone. The court just kind of assumes for the sake of argument that there might have been a constitutional violation, but it finds that the right wasn't clearly established. And it looks at two cases that are really important to its conclusion that the right here wasn't clearly established. The first is New Jersey versus TLO. Yeah, that's a big one. It's yeah. a big one for school searches, right? It basically gives us the kind of foundational test to determine whether or not a search by a school official of a student's property or person is constitutional. Yeah. So this is a 1985 Supreme Court case. It involves two questions that we have to answer in order to determine whether or not a search was constitutional. First is whether or not the search was justified at its inception. And a search is justified at its inception when the school official has reasonable grounds for suspecting that the search is going to turn up evidence of either unlawful action or evidence that the student is violating school rules. Right. So there has to be this like articulable individualized suspicion in order for it to be justified at its inception. Second, you have to look at whether or not the search as actually conducted is reasonably related in scope to the circumstances which justify the search. Yeah. And so a search is reasonably related in scope when the measures adopted are kind of not overly intrusive in light of the age, sex, maturity 
of the student, as well as kind of the nature of the infraction, the thing that you are trying to find evidence for. And so you balance those together to see if whether or not you, you know, the search was too intrusive or went too far. And here the court just basically says like the search was justified at its inception. There's nothing here that would indicate that the cell phone wouldn't have evidence of what you're looking for. Because we've had a couple witnesses who say this was occurring through text messages. Exactly. Yeah. So as soon as they hear that, there's reason to believe that there is evidence of wrongdoing on this cell phone. Right. And so that's enough, right? Because we've got these student witnesses. We know the allegations. And that's different from a lot of other cases where school officials just kind of like search cell phones because a student has it in class or something like that. That can get you into a lot of trouble. Use the evidence you have and don't overstep your your bounds, right? Like that's kind right. of what this is all about. Yeah, yeah. Which gets into the second case, which is Riley versus California, 2014 Supreme Court case, which kind of held that police can't search cell phones absent a warrant if they, you know, collect the cell phone incident to arrest. So basically, if they arrest somebody and they've got a cell phone on them, typically you can search stuff that people have on them when you arrest them just as part of the arrest. Mm -hmm. But because of the sensitive nature of cell phones, the court says that you need a warrant in order to search the cell phone just because they're so personal and we keep our whole lives on them, right. that that's too intrusive to search the cell phone just incident to arrest. Right. There's not a lot of cases applying that to schools, but the rationale that searching cell phones can be pretty intrusive, I think that that matches, especially for teenagers, right? Absolutely. And I think that that's one of the big takeaways here for school administrators or, or anybody else working in schools is that that's one of the big sort of standards when it comes to searches. You have to balance the intrusiveness or the potential intrusiveness or invasiveness because mm -hmm. you are obviously invading somebody's privacy when you search them and you have to balance the potential invasiveness of that search against the alleged infraction i guess another way of saying it is the more extreme the rule dangerous harmful if this is a, sa a potential safety issue, then schools are going to have more discretion mm -hmm. in terms of what they search and, and right. how far they go. But mm -hmm. if somebody's passing notes in class, you know, or something like that, which I, I don't know right. if students do that anymore. No, they've got text messages now. <laughs> right. But like, that's the point, right? Like if somebody's passing a note in class, you're not going to have as much discretion to search Mm -hmm. as far as you'd be able to search as you would if it were a safety issue. Right. And so here the court says that the scope of the search wasn't unreasonable because we had justification for looking at the cell phone that was directly connected to the allegation of bullying or, or teasing, harassment, whatever. And then the, the issue about scope, like did the principal or assistant principal search too far into the phone? Court says, no, not really. It wasn't unreasonable because of the way ED labeled her contacts with nicknames and emojis. And so it was reasonable to look through those because the school had no way of knowing who the recipients of the messages were. So even if they were looking for text with the witnesses, they wouldn't be able to find them unless they like went through multiple threads. So then there's Jackson's First Amendment claims. And these are the father basically saying that my free speech rights were violated by the school because of how you prevented me from talking to school officials, how you kept me off school grounds, and how you prohibited me from speaking to the school board. And the court again finds that none of those rights were clearly established and that the officials are entitled to qualified immunity. So first is this allegation that 
Jackson's First Amendment rights were violated when he wasn't allowed on campus or wasn't allowed to communicate directly with school staff. And the the court basically says that, you know what, that's not a clearly established right. Parents or other community members don't have a First Amendment right to access school property. And they don't have a First Amendment right to talk to whomever they want at the school because there were alternate channels of communication, because the parent could still talk to the school district's attorney. He still had a line of communication. It just wasn't the one he wanted. And there's nothing in the Constitution that requires the school to allow the parent to talk to whomever they want, whenever they want, and to do so on school grounds. And so the court kind of says, like, you know, case law really cuts the other way. No First Amendment violation here. Yeah. So the big takeaway for schools there is as long as there is a channel that remains open and, you know, Mm -hmm. you know, you shouldn't just ban every parent from communicating with people at school. Right. But like, you know, you need to have a good reason for it. But as long as you don't take away every single channel available to that parent, you're generally in good shape. Right. Which is a really good way to kind of insulate your staff as a school leader from these more aggressive, uh, demanding parents or <laughs> aggressive parents, right? Yeah. Like it's one of those things where it's like you act as the buffer in order to kind of channel these. And that's another thing that I saw when I was practicing is some of these parents, when they get riled up, they're just looking for any crack in the armor. Yeah. Um, and so there's really big issues where they'll go to one teacher and say one thing, they'll go to another teacher to say one thing and teachers all want to help. And that's like why we all got into this profession, right? Like we all are people, people. Yeah. And so everyone wants to help, but then it ends up, it becomes this thing where the parent can play teachers against each other. And so it really is just in everyone's best interest for efficiency, for clarity, to kind of channel these kind of less productive communications into one person. Yeah. Yeah. So then there's the issue about addressing the school board. Same sort of argument here. Jackson is saying that that violated his First Amendment rights because he wanted to basically share his concerns with the school board. And this comes down to the board's policy about who can speak to the school board during a school board meeting. So the policy just said that public comments are limited by topic to citizen complaints that cannot be resolved by the administration. In order to speak on one of those things, you had to basically provide a letter to the superintendent and then the board had discretion on or whether or not the procedural and substantive requirements had been met before allowing someone to speak. And essentially what it came down to here is Jackson didn't do that. Okay. He didn't go through the process and he didn't have a complaint that couldn't be resolved by the administration. Mm. It kind of already had been resolved by the administration. Jackson just didn't like how it had been resolved. And then the other piece of that is Jackson claimed that, you know, he was silenced from speaking to the board because of his viewpoint, which was critical of school staff's actions. And the court says, you know, this isn't really viewpoint discrimination. You know, you're being treated differently because you threatened a lawsuit. It's not because you're critical of the board or the critical of the school's action. The board, you know, they'd have to let you speak if you were critical of them. Yeah. The same way they'd have to let you speak if you were supportive. But here, like, you're not speaking because this is a, like you threatened a lawsuit. Yeah. That, that's not anything to do with your viewpoint. Exactly. And then the last point that Jackson makes or the last claim that Jackson makes is his violation or an alleged violation of his Fourth Amendment rights to be free from unreasonable search and seizures when he gets removed from the volleyball game. And here, this is a little bit of a trickier call, I think, because you've got the superintendent's letter that says he's allowed to be there. But the people who end up removing him from the basketball game don't know what's in that letter. And the SRO only knows what the superintendent told him after the initial meeting with Jackson in front of the school, which is don't let this guy back on campus. We're trespassing him. Right. 
And so this is like the one area in this whole story where the school kind of, if there were mistakes made by the school, this is clearly the place where those mistakes were made. Yeah. Right? I don't know if I want to let the school off the hook that easily because there's a lot of opportunities here to de-escalate this situation before it gets to this. Like you it, said, though, like I, I'm with you. Yeah, yeah. Like there's a lot of opportunities here that the school had. But when it comes to clear, I guess my point is oh, like, sure, if sure, there sure. is any clear place in this whole story where the school clearly screwed up, it was mm -hmm. in not informing their staff about this letter. Sure, sure, sure. There were a lot of yeah. other areas, I agree, where the school could have made a different choice and it could have had a different outcome. Right, right, right. But yes, I'm with you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's, so there's a difference here between... Um, Let's call it practical considerations and legal considerations. Yeah, yeah. This is the closest the school gets to some legal, legal potential yeah, issues. Yeah. Um, but like on a practical level, like there's a lot of ways to address this stuff in ways that hopefully make it so you never get to this point. Exactly. So anyway, uh, court says that, yeah, there were some issues here with communication, but qualified immunity applies to public officials who reasonably but mistakenly conclude that reasonable suspicion is present, um, those people are still entitled to qualified immunity. So essentially, as long as the school officials who did the removal are acting reasonably based on what they knew at the time, then it's okay. Like, they're not going to be held liable for their actions. And I think, Jamie, to your point, like, there was this letter. There's a copy of the letter on the principal's desk, but the principal hasn't read it yet. And mm -hmm. so it becomes this issue of like, who knew what, when? Yeah. Uh, and essentially the court saying, we're not going to get too far into that because based on what these people testified that they knew, it was reasonable for them to believe, even if it was mistaken, that he wasn't allowed to be there. Yeah. And so you can see how that's kind of that line, again, that we talked about at the beginning about qualified immunity. Like, yeah. we want to make sure people are able to exercise the discretion necessary to do their jobs. But, we also have to protect and make sure that people's rights don't get violated. And here, like that kind of consideration that like, you know, we have to go on what they knew yeah. at the time they were acting yeah. because otherwise we'd just be second guessing their opinion, their yeah. decisions. And hypothetically, if they were able to prove that these folks were aware of the letter and still tried to remove him anyway, the outcome very well mm -hmm. could have been different. Oh, yeah. So, I mean, I think the big takeaways here are as a school. There's, you know, there's two things. One is the cell phone search, you know, and we wanted to cover this case because obviously, you know, the cell phones, this is a big, this is a big thing in schools now. I know there's a lot of stuff in the media out there about, mm -hmm. you know, schools considering banning cell phones completely, mm -hmm. you know, even during lunch right. and those times of the day and, and everything. And like you said, students live their lives on these cell phones, not just students, all of mm -hmm. us for the most part. Oh my gosh. Um, Students live their lives on these cell phones and they play such a major role in kids' sort of day-to-day -day existence that searching a student's cell phone is potentially something that schools have to contend with on a semi-regular basis. And so that's mm -hmm. why one of the reasons why we included this case, because it reminds us that we have very important standards that we have to maintain when we search um anything of a student's mm -hmm. and a cell phone is like you said our whole lives are on it so it's a very 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 personal device you know it's like mm -hmm. there's a certain level of invasiveness in going into a student's locker compared to going into their purse right right and the cell phone is along that continuum as well mm -hmm. and we have to be very very clear if we're going to consider searching a student's cell phone 
Are we justified in doing so? Do we have the kind of information that we need that makes us believe that we could find evidence that we are looking for on this cell phone Mm -hmm. and not evidence of some other potential crime that we aren't aware of? It's evidence of the thing that we think we might find or the thing that we are looking for, right? And And reason to believe it's on the phone. Exactly. And, you know, and we got to make sure that if we do search that cell phone, we don't go further than where we would think we would find that evidence within the cell phone. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot to consider there. And then this case also is just a pretty simple reminder that as schools, we have a duty and we have an obligation to protect our staff from being threatened from overly aggressive parents or or Mm -hmm. others. And we have the ability to exercise discretion as to how Mm -hmm. we protect our staff, but we can't close off all avenues of communication for parents. Right. Yeah. Yeah. The school can structure how parents communicate with the school and its staff in productive ways. And that was always what I focused on when these issues came up when I was practicing is like, all right, let's make sure that there are productive channels of communication so everyone feels heard and valued within this relationship. Totally. Again, to your earlier point, there definitely could have been different ways that the school handled this situation at different points in time, but it's also hard for us Mm -hmm. to to know exactly what Jackson's behavior was at those Mm -hmm. critical junctions. You know, maybe the school was spot on. Right. Or maybe they'd been down this path already. Exactly. We don't know. We don't know. That wasn't part of the story. Right. But again, these are things to consider. Like if there are ways to maintain positive and healthy and productive relationships with people, you know, sometimes that means taking the high road when you might not want to, but that could ultimately result in not ending up in court. (laughs) Which is where we all want to be. Yes. Not in court. Not in court. Um, Yeah. That is Jackson versus McCurry 2019. We hope that you have enjoyed this episode of Chalk and Gavel. Chris, give us our homework. Your homework is to not end up in court. (laughs) Best of luck. See you later. (laughs) No, uh, like, rate, review, chalk and gavel, wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, That's how we get the word out there. If you want to continue to spread the word, uh, feel free to share uh, our episode on social media. You can find us at chalk and gavel. You can also find our website, chalkandgavel.com. Actually, I don't know if we've ever mentioned this. Our logo was designed by Brittany Thomas. Uh, She's a wonderful graphic designer. Any relation, Chris? Uh, Yeah, my younger sister. (laughs) Very proud. Uh, So if you have feedback, comments, social media or you can provide feedback on our website there's a form there for you where you can make feedback and also give us recommendations if there's cases you want us to cover if there are topics you want us to address if you have questions about anything we've already talked about please hit us up we're happy to continue the conversation all right well that does it we hope you've enjoyed this episode and all of our episodes so far and uh, we look forward to uh, talking to you a little bit again in a couple of weeks See you soon. Oh, yeah.